0: In this episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast, where we explore the question, how do leaders leave people better than they found them? We have the privilege of speaking with Jacob Hess. Jacob holds a PhD in Clinical Community Psychology from the University of Illinois. He's taught teens and adults mindfulness-based stress reduction and worked on creating online mindfulness-based classes for the last 10 years. Jacob has published 14 peer-reviewed studies and is the lead author of The Power of Stillness, and as well, a book with Phil Neisser called, You're Not as Crazy as I Thought, But You're Still Wrong. Jacob is a former board member of the National Coalition of Dialogue and Deliberation, and currently he serves as the research director at Impact Suite, an organization that helps businesses reduce costs by encouraging employees to get at the roots of depression, anxiety, and addiction and move towards deeper and more lasting healing. I'll put links to all of these resources uh, in the show notes, um, as well as a link to Impact Suite. If you wanna learn more and get a demo, you can can look them up. In today's episode, Jacob gives practical tips on how to be more effective um, as a leader through both mindfulness and engaging in healthy dialogue with others with whom we don't agree. Uh, I learned a lot from this conversation with Jacob, and I think you will too. My name is Dr. Pete Longhurst, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Marcy McKay. Jacob, welcome to, to our podcast here. It's awesome to have you, um, have you with us. I, the reason that I asked you, well, two two reasons that I am so excited to, to have you speak to us is, uh, one, you have an expertise in this idea of facilitating dialogue between people who hold opposing views and still being able to respect each other, which is, uh, especially right now, uh, a very um, difficult thing, it seems so. Uh, And the second thing that I'm really excited to talk to you about is you have this expertise in the area of mindfulness, which I don't know about the rest of you, but like, for me, that's also super (laughs) relevant right now in this busy uh, world and getting things done. And how do we um, take time to be still? Yeah, really.
1: Thanks for having me on. Um, I... I struggled with anxiety growing up, like a lot of teens today. And when I was in graduate school, I was introduced to this thing called mindfulness. And I actually went to a conference and arrived at the conference at University of Massachusetts. And what I noticed is these people were so calm, calm, like creepily calm. I'm like, who are these people and what is it that they do that is helping them be so calm. And, they, and these were not people I was used to being around. They had what would Buddha do bumper stickers and, and light, enlighten up, you know?
2: <laughs> and so
1: it was like a, a new kind of culture. Um, but I started to study mindfulness in the context of depression. Like rather than trying to make depression go away, which sometimes works and mostly doesn't last what would happen if we turn towards the painful feelings and learn to work through them. That's, that's the mindful way through depression. And I was, I was fascinated by this. So I started as a scholar, fascinated at the alternative narrative of how to intervene with depression. But eventually, I trained as a mindfulness teacher. And I've taught hundreds of adults and teenagers how to sit in silence with their own mind. In their own heart and their own body and it's really magical to see people you know we all know people who run around like with noise like you have to have noise because i can't be in silence i can't be with my own self <laughs> but you can learn how you can actually learn how to sit with the mess inside and if you sit with it long enough it starts to clear out it starts to it starts to change but if we shove it down in the cellar, um, it's still right there. We've just shoved it away. So that that was my fascination with mindfulness.
2: It's interesting because uh, my last place of employment and even in where I work today, I know that there are people that are craving an opportunity for mindfulness. And there have been requests for those types of Courses or opportunities or spaces, um, even just uh, even once a week, to allow people fifteen minutes to just be still uh, before um, starting the day and and having to have all the answers. And so I I certainly see a, a need and a desire and and a shift I I would say in in looking at people trying to find opportunities to be more mindful. Um, If you are working with somebody that is new to that space, what what advice would you give them?
1: Well, you don't have to go to the misty mountaintops of China to do this. (laughs) Yeah, And you don't have to hold your hands in a certain way. And you don't need to convert to a new religion. This is about cultivating stillness in your life little bits and pieces of s- stillness, silence, and space. How much of it do you have in your life? I mean, for a lot of us, we get up in the morning and, and uh, C.S. Lewis has this great image of wild dogs grabbing us as soon as you wake up and dragging us off <laughs> into the day. And he's the, the author, C.S. Lewis. He says the first, your first job is just to push back those wild animals and make a little a little moment where you just feel your body and notice what's on your mind and heart, right? That's what you do when you go on retreat, on a long mindfulness retreat. You wake up in the morning and you just feel your body. You notice what's going on. And that sounds like, well, duh, but it's not duh because we live in our heads so much in our digital world that it's easy to get disconnected from the body. Uh, James Joyce wrote the book, uh, The Dubliners. And in that book, he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fun fun image that describes a lot of us. Like one gal in our class, she's taking her mindfulness class. By week three, she realized she had a broken foot. And she's like, I didn't even know it. (laughs) <laughs> you know? wow but that's not unusual we're kind of numbed out from the one way to think about mindfulness is it's uh it's sinking the body and the mind again <laughs> whereas we can kind of lie in bed at night and it's very common for people to be so exhausted physically but their minds are going and going going right so mindfulness is about getting back in yeah, Marcy's pointing at her. 100%
2: me, 100% me. <laughs> it's
1: about getting back in the body. My little boy, you know, so agitated with all the sugar of the holidays. He's he's so exhausted and he couldn't sleep. Well, I, I did what we call body scan, where you just touch his toes, touch his ankles, touch his knees. And by the time I got to his belly, he was asleep because mm. he's finally back in touch with his body. So as we... Re-familiarize ourselves with our whole experience, rather than just our cognitive experience. Rather than living in our heads, we find that we suffer less because we're actually notice like, "Huh, my body's really tired. I need to take a break." Or, um, "I'm feeling this way. Maybe I need to pay some attention to it." So, mindfulness is just about another way, uh, kind of a uh, a more Mindfulness is just another way to pay attention in a non-judgmental, compassionate way to anything that's going on in our life.
0: So if I'm if I'm a a, a manager and um, I get to work and I've got let's say eighty five emails in my inbox and. Uh, you know, I've got a full day, back-to-back meetings, you know, like this is the pretty typical situation. And I'm hearing someone saying, hey, take time to be still, take time to just reflect and be and be more intentional and, and be in touch with your body and stuff. And and I'm saying like, well, that sounds great, but it doesn't make my email list my inbox you know gets shorter and, and, and there are all these practicalities that come up. Do you have any tips for how to maybe um, like you said, not going to the misty mountains but rather just right here and now? what, what, what kind of tips do you have?
1: Well, mindfulness is not about getting uh, being inefficient or slow. like meditators get a lot done. <laughs> but you know you know what it's like to get things done? in the shallows where you're just like you're just checking things off how much power how much presence is there Uh, we all know the difference between a conversation with someone where they are fully present you are like they're a hundred percent with us right so you can think about this as a much higher level of potency in your work where you can really be present but it's also recognizing that we can't do that all the time and like, for instance, professional writers, it's really um, well known that there's a rhythm to full time writing where you have to take breaks at certain, uh, you know, every X minutes and you need to get up and go do something. so, you know, in our company, um, we like to say, wait, which meeting can I take outside today and walk around the building with someone? You know? Yeah, I love which, that idea. Which conversation, you know, uh, standing desks where you stand up, how can you make your day into a rhythm between doing and non-doing, between stillness and movement? It's, you know, Even just moving your eyes away from the screen every 20 minutes uh, is really good. So mm-hmm. it's just bringing an awareness to it so that, that we're not sucked down the rabbit hole of, Uh, So we're exhausted when we get home because we've never taken breaks. Um, One little suggestion is called the stop practice. And um, even just in 30 seconds, you can pause whatever you're doing. Take a few conscious breaths, which kind of centers your attention to your breath. And then after that, you can just do that for like 10 seconds or 20 seconds, then expand and check out your body. And then get back to what you're doing. So stop, take a few conscious breaths, observe anything else, and then proceed, right? And this is just about checking in with yourself. Sort of like, okay, I'm going, going, going. I'm going to stop. Check out how I'm doing and then proceed. And that interruption of the flow of all the activity can make a lot of difference. This is what we encourage people to do in our class. Interrupt the normal flow of your day with a little, just dropping in on yourself. Just, you know, you drop in at a friend's house. How are you doing? (laughs) That's great. How are you doing? How am I really doing? Actually, I feel exhausted. Maybe I'll go home a little earlier. Maybe I'll get to bed a little earlier.
0: You know, I was just talking to a colleague, Jacob, about how, um, Sometimes we get so into the um, kind of the hey, get things done, get things done, that sometimes we just don't stop and say, hey, how how are you doing? How are you feeling? And when you when you talked about um, being fully present, um, I, I don't know about you all, but in this virtual world where we have the instant messaging going at work, <laughs> you, you're talking to somebody and you know that they're, They're talking to somebody else while they're talking to you and closing. And it's like, it it makes you feel just like they don't even care about you. It's like, oh, okay. They're multitasking. (laughs) And so when you said like, when you're really focused on somebody, it's so powerful. And I would take five minutes of somebody really being focused on me versus like 30 minutes of like, uh-huh 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 you know while i'm typing and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway that just made me think of that like you know that is more a shorter amount of time of like really focused is so much better than um anyway
1: it feels good on better on both sides and, and then when we go home with our partners with our children or, or others who we're living with how much are we giving half attention to them you know versus Someone asked Mother Teresa once, "How did you get everything done that you did?" And she said, "I just gave hundred percent to the person right in front of me."
2: Hmm.
1: That was her. That was her answer, and it does feel different. So,
0: um, Jacob, I, I also wanted to be sure that we we talked about this um, kind of one of your other fields of, of expertise, and I'd love to hear how if and how they kind of tie together. And that is this idea of, um, so you wrote a book called, uh, You're Not as Crazy as I Thought, But You're Still Wrong. (laughs) Great (laughs) title. title. (laughs) Um, Where where you sat down with somebody who has um, different political views and had a conversation um, in, in this book. And and so I'd love to hear kind of like, how did you, and then also you recently wrote an article for the Deseret News that I love that that talked about the success of this kind of grassroots organization called Braver Angels that, that helps people from different sides of the political spectrum to come together and have respectful um, conversations. So um, I'd love to hear, how did you get into that field? What you know what? What's the story there? And then and writing that book, and you're still involved. It sounds like, um, and then we can maybe move to some practical tips. But first, just how did you go to that space?
1: Well, I went to grad school after growing up in Utah, and I felt like I was in another world. And <laughs> the second second year of graduate school, my brother died from cancer. Mm-hmm. And here I was, this conservative kid in a really liberal environment, and I was surrounded by love. These people grieved with me. They, I wept in their arms when I heard the news he was coming home from the hospital. You know, the arms of my LGBT classmate, um, Adrian. And, and so I came away from graduate school realizing, wait a minute. This whole culture war thing, you know, that we're swimming in and all of our, you know, all of the employees of any company, we're just swimming in this idea that we're supposed to be at war with each other. And I was like, I don't, I don't see that. Like these liberal people who don't share my same uh, religious or political philosophy, I don't see any of them twirling their mustaches, plotting the overthrow of the republic. They were they were fighting domestic violence and racism and you know uh, things that I was not as familiar with, but they were trying to do good for our, for our country. So I came away with that realizing, wait a minute there's such goodness on both sides of the political spectrum and thoughtful, good-hearted people can disagree about all sorts of things. So it, in a way I, I got I realized, Disagreeing about even serious things like the nature of God and the universe and identity and our bodies and sexuality, like it's okay, like we can have different perspectives. So, um, given the hyper polarized environment that we're all living in, I do think it's wise for leaders to think proactively about this and understand just like the mental health epidemic, just like, you know, we're living in an epidemic. What can we do proactively to cultivate a climate that is antidepressant or anti-anxiety, also anti-partisan, anti sort of like hostility. And the way we try to do it uh, in our own organization is we say, look, we're pro-disagreement here. (laughs) You don't have to agree with the boss on something. And if you, if you have a concern, let's bring it up because we're stronger if we bring together our different perspectives. And, you know, businesses have to be careful about this. But we also try to signal pretty strongly that people from different political, philosophical, religious persuasions can be involved in this. and We can get along and we can work together and we can learn from each other. And um, yeah, especially in an environment where there's a lot of pressure to like um, come out in support of one side or one position, I think it's important to proactively cultivate what Jonathan Haidt describes as um, ideological diversity, to say we can have different ideas and work together here. And that's what we believe. And I can tell you the research suggests that if leaders are willing to come out and say things like that, it makes a huge difference for everyone else. So at a university, so I've done, I've looked at university campuses and when a university president will come out and say, we value ideological differences, or that it's also known as viewpoint diversity, along with all the other diversities, right? But we also value different perspectives here. You can have a different perspective and you can disagree. It makes a huge ripple effect all the way down.
2: Well, thank you so much for sharing what was, I'm sure, just a, a life-changing experience. But what a, what a wonderful thing to walk away from that experience with. Um, and you've clearly been able to influence a lot of other people through that experience. And, and that's a, a beautiful tribute to you and, and to your brother, um Thank there's you. something there's something that you wrote in your article um one of the articles that i read that i really loved and you just touched on that for just a moment about this idea of healthy disagreements because we are each individual everybody we are going to have disagreements even you know you can love your family you can love you know and, and still disagree with them at times um, what do you think are is key to those healthy disagreements? How can you have a healthy disagreement and walk away with potentially a stronger relationship?
1: Oh, what a great question. I mean, for me, I know I'm drifting away from healthy disagreement when... I consider the person who disagrees with me as somehow <laughs> like, when you start to get ideas about the character or the honesty or the goodness of this other person. And uh mm. versus I mean some of my best friends are like they think my ideas are nonsense and and, and you know two of my dearest friends are Marxist, atheists you know they don't see the world like i do but i i adore them and they adore me you know like so it's really exciting when you can find this sweet spot of strong disagreement and affection and respect and I, if you don't have a relationship like that in your life i would encourage you as a as a very concrete challenge to try it reach out to that person who you like ah how do they think that way and say i just want to understand where you're coming from You know, not to debate, not to like beat them over the head, because it's a great joy in my life to have relationships with people who don't see the world like I do. And I can call them up and say, Bernie Sanders just said this. Help me understand that. This is driving me crazy. And they're like, okay, get off the ledge. Let me explain it, you know. And they do the same for me, you know.
2: Well, and I like how you just said a a good gauge for you as if you are thinking that person is, is somehow um, trying to attack or criticize or whatever. And I, I, my brother has occasionally called me out and said, I know you're in a fight with that person. They're not trying to hurt you or get you, you need to calm down. You know? <laughs> and I think that that's a, a good trigger.
1: <laughs> yeah. And by, t- just to, to riff a little bit, like some of these disagreements are so serious whether it's health, yeah. pandemic stuff, or sexuality, or climate, that they are existential questions, right? And, and so we also need to be patient and understanding that if people feel threatened, it's because these differences matter that much. And I, I know from experience that we can still hold them, Just like, you know, going back to meditation, how you can hold all the mess inside. And if you hold the mess in a compassionate, gentle way, it starts to change. That same principle applies to the space between us. And if instead of like shoving it away in the cellar and saying, I'm not going to bring that up, or I'm never going to talk about that, if we can actually... Hold it and say, hey, I'd like to understand this with you. This is really confusing. I, I've i seen over and over how that, that space can clear out. It can lighten. And I've seen people whose depression symptoms go down after they feel heard, right? Yeah. To make a connection back to our earlier discussion. It hurts to be angry. It really does. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the kind of the, 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 the conflicts that seep into our our intimate relationships, our families, when that tension is in the air, it's hard. It hurts even more when we're angry for a long time. (laughs) And that describes so many people right now that I wish people would see dialogue and mindfulness are two topics today as public health interventions. I wish wish they would see them as, you want to know why you should do this? Not because it's fun, I don't tell people to come to my meditation class to have fun. No, no, it's <laughs> hard work. You want to know why to do it? To suffer less and to connect again with like a, a deeper place in life that's sweeter. And, and both of these practices have similar cleansing effects. Like I don't walk around fearful and angry with my political opposite. I get confused and I still have concerns, but you don't, we don't have to suffer so much. And, and for sure, any leader out there that's working with employees, you just know that we're all swimming in the same soup. You know, we're all going and listening to these people that are riling us all up. So anything you can do to kind of lower the temperature and open up the communication channels and help people be heard. I mean, don't underestimate the impact of that for good in your company and, of course, at home and in the rest of our lives.
2: Um, what I was going to say is is one of the things that's hard often that I find uh, in in the business world is not, you know, it's not um, necessarily the, you know, I believe this fervently, and this is what I don't believe. And, you know, it's not, it's not quite that important. <laughs> it's, it's the, how are we going to attack this deadline? Or how are we going to get this done? And, and that's when the emotions are really running pretty high. And that's when when things are, are really, really stressful. And I, I think that um, it's often harder to take the time to let people be heard. Um, but it's, it's so critical, but you know, often the leader is also caught up in the heat of the moment and in the, in the stress and in all of that. And I think that that's where the mindfulness tie comes back. You know, they've got to know enough to stop and take a breath and check mm-hmm. in on the team, but they've got to be willing to check in with themselves first how do you remember that when you were in the heat of stress and crazy and deadlines?
1: I think your own sharing pointed towards a really important answer, Marcy, and that is if, if you're kind of moving towards a deadline and then the, the wheels start, start to fall off, or there's conflict, pause and say, hold on. How's everybody feeling here? You know, the same thing that we talked about, checking in with yourself, checking in with your team and saying, what's going on right now? Like, what t- let's, let's pause. Yeah, the project, it's important. But if, you just, if we keep barreling forward towards the outcome without taking care of how people are doing, it's not going to end as well as it should. And I think people appreciate a little reminder that they matter at least as much as the outcome. And so I would say that, that, that that's another good suggestion. If things are starting to fall apart or the uh, the animosity is spiking up or frustrations, mm-hmm. pause and make sure people are heard and and check in and, and try to resolve. Now some people are not, you know, if, if somebody's really belligerent, you know, it's not like you can always placate everyone, but you could you could have private meetings with people. Um that's important because I don't think that's our natural tendency to pause. We just like, uh, you know, you the momentum yeah. and you're like, oh, we just got to keep going. No, 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 you don't. You can stop. You just say, what's going on? Let's check in.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the the last thing that I just wanted to ask before we get to our, our sort of our final question um, is what, what, advice do you have for um, anyone, really, managers, team members, you know, whatever sort of situation we have with people that really don't get along, they don't see eye to eye, they have different approaches to things, but yet they're still on this team, and they still have to work together. How how do you get to a place like uh, you experienced with, with your you know, with the book and some of your experiences with these groups of people that have such strong dis, um, disagreements, but were able to still come together and, and build relationships. How, how do you do that?
1: <laughs> you know, I can't help, I can't, I can't help think about the research on marriage that shows couples who have a lot of struggles But hang on and find healing and go on to are some of the happiest and closest couples. That describes my own marriage. And if I was a manager of a team that was really like at each other's throats, I would sit down with them and have that conversation about the conversation and say, look, I know that there's some feelings here. I know that there's some struggles. What a great opportunity. Seriously. (laughs) Because... Like this is a chance for you to stretch and to grow. And I want you to know as a manager that everything that we're talking about is workable and you have it in you to do this. And just, just the other day, I had a neighbor boy over who got in a fight with my one of my sons and, and it was being a bully. And I said, you're not allowed to come to our home until you come and talk with us. <laughs> and this is the same conversation I had with him. Like, look. We can work through this, you know, and how cool to to be in an opportunity where you can go from those hard feelings to like developing a closeness. I think we're we're in a a place in America where if we feel uncomfortable about anything, our tendency is just to say, well, I better just leave. I feel comfortable Mm -hmm. about this marriage or this faith or this job. This job doesn't properly glorify me. I better go find a new one. And maybe... That needs to happen. Sometimes that needs to happen. But very often, if, if we can learn to sit with discomfort, which is another phrase that you can use, like sit with discomfort, just like you do in meditation, and sit with the discomfort and work on it and, and move forward together, affection can come. And respect can be restored, and that's the beauty of this practice, and that's why it's you know it has its roots in all the great faith traditions and spiritual traditions, because um, there is sort of a energy and a spirit to trying this. It's not easy, but I'll tell you, it's there's so much more joy in it than just running away from anything that's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like oh, those are not my people; those are my people. Oh, the air in the car is too cold gotta get it just right well let's learn to expand our spectrum of experiences that we can relish and our spectrum of people that we can appreciate instead of just having this narrow band of no no these are the only these are the people that are my people and these are this is the food and this is the music this is about more richness getting more richness in our lives as well that was a little long sorry
2: no that was great Appreciate that insight.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jacob. And our, our last question that we always ask is um, this idea of regenerative leadership, which is, how do you leave people better than you found them? And we'd love to hear your answer
1: on that. Well, Robert Millet once defined love as seeing people truthfully and I, I think it's really rare for someone to be seen truthfully, meaning in all their goodness and beauty and worth. I have, I have moments where I just I have a glimpse of one of my coworkers or my wife or a friend and I'm just blown away like, wow, there's, there's profound goodness here. You know, there's so much animosity and fear and suspicion that it's not common for people to feel that anymore. So I'd say we, we leave people better if we can see them for who they really are. And I mean, I don't just mean in their particular demographics, you know, I, I, I mean, in their worth, in their heart and their mind and their goodness. And I, I just think if we'd open our eyes a little bit, we'd all be able to to show that to each other. I know that when people treat me that way, I'm just naturally motivated to be better.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Jacob. You've certainly left us a little bit better today. So we appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, enjoyed thank you, Jacob. I enjoyed this.
1: I enjoyed this. Um, thanks for the, thanks for your time today.
0: We'd like to thank Jacob for being so generous to share his experience and wisdom with us. Join us next time as we continue to explore the question, how do you leave people better than you found them?